Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. My commitment is to crossing over that river, the, the river of victimhood. Um, but you have to be in that river. You will be in that river if you've been violated. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Little Amsterdam, the 11th track from Tori's third album, Boys for Pele. Little Amsterdam in a southern town Harmony Get it on the plate, girl Mama Keep your head down Mama It was my bullet Don't take me Back to the rain Back to on a cul-de-sac in Bentley Helms, Arizona, and I'm quite sure I'm in the wrong track. You're in the wrong... <laughs> in the wrong thong. David. Thong, 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 thong. Oh, it's a mashup. There should be a voodoo thong song mashup. Yeah, timeless. Timeless. Uh, hi, David. <laughs> hey. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm well. Good. Thank you for asking. Oh, of course. Thank you for I'm, checking in um, on me. I'm glad that we're recording this episode in the Drive All Night Studios. We originally talked about uh, recording it on location, but I feel like it's just easier for me to smell the American South here. Right. In my home. <laughs> I did get the honeysuckle incense for you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to say honeysuckle. Hi, David. How have you been? You look well. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, not, not much has transpired since last I saw you because we are back in our groove. We're recording regularly now we are stella yeah we are recording regularly it's crazy right i know i love it do you want to tell the people what we have in store on our next drive all night plus well we're going to be playing a little game eve has very cleverly dubbed wait wait don't tour me see is that good if it just is not good (laughs) it's not a good title is it maybe maybe we'll have a different title by the time we release it it's a placeholder maybe maybe ask me i'm not helping so i'm not criticizing like the choice that you've made but i just feel like there's something else and we haven't gotten there yet wait wait don't tour me yeah is it just no it has to rhyme somehow like the word that you're replacing i don't know wheel of torchin yeah we talked about that in torperty or oh, Jep- tor- Jep- tor- Jepertor. There's that other podcast game show called Ask Me Another. We could ask me a torther. No. Anyway, listen for that on our Drive All Night Plus this month. Ah, so you've been well. You've been good. How's your job? It's good. It's good. I'm more interested in my own podcast that I'm developing on the side now. Remind people the name of it. You know what? I thought I was changing the name, but I, I'm keeping it Don't Be Afraid of Your Dreams, I think. It speaks to everything that I want to talk about. So I, ladies and gentlemen, have listened to the first 20 minutes, the rough draft. <sighs> it's fantastic. We'll promote it, of course, when it's available. Well, thank you for saying that. Eve is, of course, always supportive of all my endeavors. Thank you. Speaking of dreams, let's get to this fever dream of a song. <laughs> um, when was the first time you heard Little Amsterdam? I was waiting for it on that day, that fateful day, that January 23rd. <laughs> 
Was that the day that you were crucified? It was. Put on a little Shiseido red. I loved Way Down instantly. And this song I loved. The song's a great song. I have no problems with the song. The song's amazing. But it wasn't until I saw it live the fir- at my first Tory show in 96 that I really connected with the song. And it, that was in November. So a whole, almost a whole year had gone by, you know? And I was like, oh my God, that song, Little Amsterdam, I get it. The projections, Caton, everything. It Your was, first show was that late in that tour, huh? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I realized that. Yeah. So performances of that had really evolved by that point. It had become an epic. Right. It was epic. Kind yeah. of exorcism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't get it twisted. I had been following on igloo.net slash Mike Y. So I'd been following the set list. I was like, I was on the forums. I knew about the live shows. But she hadn't come to Albuquerque, and it wasn't until late in that tour that she announced she was going to Albuquerque. I can certainly see why seeing this song live for the first time on that tour would help you connect with it in that way. Because it was a staple, for sure, and it's kind of an interesting choice for her to have given so much attention to on that tour. But she certainly did, and I don't want to jump ahead to the live section. But I have a thought on why she was so proud of the song, that we can get to it in the next act. So, okay. First things first, let's take a little break. I would like to say thank you to our Patreon supporters who continue to impress me. We're so grateful to you. So a big shout out. Thank you. And some of these may be repeats, but if not, we'd rather repeat than not mention um, our wonderful donors, Mario Scala, Corey Freire, Keith Alexander, Sheldon Krieger, Heather Logston, Shay Stymack, Christina Mullinax, Eric Lane, Justin Sagusa, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Justin. I'm sorry if I'm not. Amy Parker, Mika Casisto, Natalie Madison-Taylor, Yoke Westmoreland, Amanda Diane. Thank you, folks. To those of you who support us month after month, to those of you who support us here and there, it all means something to us. Even if you can't support us, just supporting us on social media means everything to us. You can follow us always at Songs of Torimus, our website, songsoftoremus.com. And please write us a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. We love hearing from you. We do. And honestly, when we're, we're recording and I'm just staring into Eve's eyes for hours and hours, it's sometimes easy to forget that you're out there and you're actually listening to the show so when we hear from you and how you're responding to it it's really it's really great so uh beyond patreon supporters though i want to take a moment also to talk about all of the incredible mail we received david just said we love hearing from you and we do so please continue to uh send us mail songs of Miss at gmail.com so many of you take the time to write us and tell us your tory stories and sometimes really moving tory stories and i don't feel right reading them on the air but know that we are reading them and we're so moved by them and we're so grateful that you're sharing your stories with us. Anyway, let's get to it, yeah? Yep. Okay. Here's a little bit from Daryl Banner. Now, this is a 16-bit cover of Little Amsterdam that we found online. He's done a bunch of them. Um, This is the first time we're playing one on our show. Uh, So here you go. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Okay, we're going to start here with a quote. This is from the Michael Jackson radio show on KABC on February 9th, 1996. Tori says... The South represents so much that is hidden. This record is about the fragments that have been hidden. So naturally, I had to follow that and go after that frequency. There is a lot of domination in this song. The idea that you don't follow your heart because you're afraid that if you do, that you can't have your family or you can't have your friends or that you'll be outcast. That's very much what the South has been about for me. Speaking about that which was hidden could get you really ostracized. Okay, so what do you think about that quote, David? This record is about the fragments that have been hidden. That is brand new information. Yeah. Um, <laughs> new. So naturally, I had to follow that. She's a hunter. Yeah. I mean, you're gonna. she's going to follow Demeter and whoever else. Uh, right. Naturally. No, no. So the South. You mentioned in the last episode that there's no song on this album to you that sounds more like the South or more successfully to your ear is the South than Little Amsterdam. Yes. Except for Way Down, I guess. Well, yeah, Way Down With too. the gospel yeah. choir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she really, really pushes that the second half of this album is kind of continuing that descent and going to the south and the place of the hidden. And I don't necessarily hear that musical influence mm-hmm, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, and I might reassess that mm-hmm. as we go. Um, voodoo, I guess, could be an exception. But um, yeah, when I hear Donut Song, for example, I don't necessarily associate that with the South, Fair. do you? Come in Houston. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, and Southern men can grow cold, can go pretty. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I, I guess mean, I get the lyrical references, yeah. but she does talk so much about the roots of Southern music right. as I saw them and all of that. And I, maybe I, my ear is not sophisticated enough. You mean the, the tone of the music? Yeah. You're probably right. I mean, there is the Southern twang. And I think this is the first time and one of the few times that Tori has put together a narrative from beginning that has a beginning, middle, and an end of a different character that is clear. There's a tale happening, and she, there's something really enchanting about it. I totally agree with that. I think this is the first, maybe the only example of Tori um, as storyteller, especially where she's this successful. And I think, at least when she attempted it prior to this, it was always... Um, a little more clear what the inspiration from her real life might have been or or how her story wove through it. Like Pretty Good Year, for example, she talks about the Greg story, but Tori's present in the song. Mm -hmm. And I think this one is a little harder to untangle what's, I'll say, real and what isn't. Right. Because it feels all like she's a storyteller of someone else's tale Mm -hmm. in a way. I would compare this to, now bear with me, I would compare this song to Daisy Dead Petals an attempt to tell a story about a character, but that one's so obtuse. Mm -hmm. You can't figure out on any level what's going on, but here she lays out like what's happening. And just in the preliminary chat that David and I had before we started recording, I already can tell you we have completely different interpretations of it. So I'm excited because I never expected that with the song. So I'm excited to get into that. But before we should talk about where this album appears. Where this song appears? We should talk about where this song appears. (laughs) (laughs) Where does this song appear? It's on Boys for Pele, David. It is. And it's beginning. track 11, which you put particular emphasis on yeah, at it's the track top 11. of the show. I put emphasis on it because it was true. It also appears on the Live in New York Deluxe VHS mm. cassette tape, The Concert for Rain from mm. 1997. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. very strong performance. It is on the original bootlegs from Denver and Manchester, 2005. Mm-hmm. And on five, count them five on your fingers. It'll be easy. Legs and boots. Or use your toes because it's <laughs> legs and boots, I guess. 
Boston, Lawrence, Melbourne, Houston, and Phoenix. So this song has had quite a life. Quite a life. It's never really taken a break, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. these are official releases, yeah. but aside from like Gold Dust or something, I don't think right. there's been a tour where she didn't perform it. This song is a staple in her live show. So do you, you do like it? You love this song? I do love this song. I think it's something else I feel like I'm saying every episode, and I probably will, at least through these first few albums, is this is a classic Tory track, yeah. but it is. Yeah. It's part of why we fell in love with her, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you want to, So Neil Gaiman's reaction to Boys for Pele, and specifically this song, um, posted to Jeannie. His friend Jeannie. Jeannie Francis from General Hospital. Right. Um, but Neil Gaiman said, specifically Little Amsterdam, he says, Little Amsterdam, a sort of Southern Gothic song about death row. So that's a word we'll hear again and again, gothic, southern gothic. Mm. Speaking of Neil, let's hear a little from his friend Tori. (laughs) This is from World Cafe, March 1st, 1996. Take it away, girl. Hit it, Tori. We travel further into Little Amsterdam. We go down south, which is really symbolic for um, the primal, the primitive, and the lies and the um, really the domination. Little Amsterdam. What do you think of that? Going down into the south, which is symbolic for the primal. Well, we're going to get into that, especially when we dive into the lyrics, I think. What do you think she means by the primal, the primitive? I don't know. She talks so much about kind of tracing ancient bloodlines Mm -hmm. on this album. And I think a lot of the history of our country is rooted in the south Mm -hmm. and a lot of things... I was going to say good and bad, but mostly bad. Yeah, like there are darker secrets. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of it. And again, she says the hidden, and that can mean a lot of things. But um, specifically, I think it means things that we don't want to acknowledge as true or having happened Okay. Um, because it's too hard to look at them. Again, she talks about collecting the hidden, the hidden parts of herself and claiming them. So I think that's all sort of bundled up in this. And the South symbolizes that for her. Um, you want to hit us with a quote? This quote is from B-Side, May, June, 96, that amazing article where she gave a long, in-depth, track-by-track mm-hmm. breakdown in a way that I'm not sure she ever has before. Little Amsterdam, which is all metaphorical, is about wanting to kill people, being angry at people that you feel have done something, the whole domination thing, the whole hierarchy, patriarchy, and her way to fight back, and they are blaming her, but it wasn't her bullet, but she still believes it would have been fine if Tori makes a soft gunshot noise. They lost him. Hmm. Thematically, she's really dealing with a lot of darkness. I mean, we know that throughout this whole record, way down, talking about going way down into that that's hidden. But not, but she's talked about Son of Sam. You know, I, I can't imagine a, another time in her catalog that got that dark, like that had such a dark reference. And now here she's talking about she still believes it would have been fine if they lost him, meaning they killed him. Right. And she specifically mentions wanting to kill people, which, um, you know, she kind of also explored with the waitress, I guess, in her own capacity for violence. So she's kind of revisiting that theme a little bit. But um, I want to get into, uh, maybe during the lyrical portion, who the the he is Mm -hmm. in this song that she's referring to. And we've already said that there's a lot of storytelling going on here, but I think... Tori is always pulling inspiration from something she's experienced in her life. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can get a little closer to what that might have been. Okay, so you're saying that the he that she's talking about in the context of the song may be someone in her life. Is what you're saying? Am Possibly. I getting it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Interesting. Because this is one song where I felt like maybe she's not present. She's an observer. At all? Oh, well, I wouldn't say at all. But I feel like this is one of the clearest instances of her just being the observer, just being the interpreter, just seeing what's in front of her and painting a picture. But I'm super curious to hear where you think she's in the song. Yeah, well... Because I see her sort of peering through the window. But I'm if she's present in this world, I would love to hear where you think she is. Yeah, I think that's totally valid. I'm just wondering, this is obviously such a deeply personal album. Mm-hmm. What, if Tori is just an observer, um, a storyteller, why would be important to her to include that song on this album and what this song would mean to her? If, and where, if why that's it falls, true. Yeah, why it falls in the middle and what right. it's, yeah. Okay, so I, you're probably right. David, you've been right before. <laughs> Um, this is from Really Deep Thoughts, issue 10, summer 1996. She says, I'm a big Faulkner fan, Tennessee Williams fan. How I would get taken into the story. There are so many levels of a story. There are so many levels of a dinner table conversation that's happening with the smells against what's being said, the rhythm of the shuffled feet, because you're dealing with the unconsciousness as well as consciousness at every moment. The big thing that started to come to me in Amsterdam was... I mean, I'll tell you this, just visitations of Sylvia Plath as I would be singing, Don't Take Me Back to the Range. The struggle of knowing I could kill him, knowing he should be killed, knowing I'm totally fine about it, but mom, it wasn't my bullet, and I'm paying for it. I get fascinated by boundaries. What a quote. First of all, can I just say something about Tennessee Williams? And when she says that, it really strikes something in me, because I worked on a Tennessee, and this is a long way around to a very specific point. I worked on a Tennessee Williams play called Orpheus Descending. I did a sound design for it. And I came in, you know, the week before we opened, never really saw the play. The actress in the play was never prepared. And then the play opened. And on opening night, the actress was, obviously she'd been saving it for an audience, you know, because she was phenomenal. And the play was three hours long. And after that journey of that three hour play, the first night, I realized why these Tennessee Williams, Southern Gothics, interesting, are so long because you are there's so many layers and you to be an observer in the story have to be deeply involved to have that meaningful experience i feel like that experience i have with orpheus descending is similar to the experience i have with boys for pele like you're so it rooted in it after three hours you you with these characters in a well-acted long slow paced play you're so involved that it's so cathartic like whatever they're going through whatever is supposed to happen moves you so i that resonates with me when she says how i would get taken into the story how there are so many levels of the story the unconscious the conscious and how i just need you know you need to there's so many layers that's interesting too because if anything tori usually references visual artists mm-hmm. as an inspiration she yeah. very rarely mentions writers it was happening a little more frequently Around this period, in terms of the influence on her songwriting, I think, like, E. e. Cummings, maybe, yeah, and right. Sylvia Plath, but, um, yeah. Um, there is a Sylvia Plath reference in Butterfly. Um, the line, if I could kill one man, why not two, why not two? is a refurbished, <laughs> repurposed line from a Sylvia right. Plath and, poem called Daddy. And because she um, mentioned Sylvia Plath in this quote, and specifically in reference to uh, the lyric, don't take me back to the range, I was trying to find if that was another instance of that happening. Same. If she was pulling something out of a Sylvia Plath poem, we need a Sylvia Plath scholar because I was not able to find find anything. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something there, but we're not not sure what it is. You try Googling Sylvia Plath and the range. And don't see if thousands of sites pop up saying the range of Sylvia Plath's poetry. 
But so. then I went down a Bruce Hornsby in the range rabbit hole and I never <laughs> looked back. <laughs> Better Just than, the way it is. Right, exactly. Why don't you read... So Tori did, you know, the liner notes for the deluxe edition and revisited the song. Do you think she's she... working on the liner notes for the deluxe edition of Choir Girl right now? David. Oh. Don't, it hurts too much, mm. David. <laughs> it hurts too much. Anyway, read what she has to say about this song 20 years later. The plot thickens. The story of a daughter whose mother fell in love with somebody that society didn't think she should. This is the idea of the South and interracial relationships, especially in the 60s and 70s, and people in certain places not embracing it like they are now. I was traveling so much on the Under the Pink tour, and I was circling the South and the Midwest, driving from one small town to another small town. I didn't get to the coast for a while. I feel like the stories were seeping through my skin. So she talks about being on tour. She talks about being in the South for a very long period of time, which is another reason why I think she's the observer. Like she's got so much that she's observed, you know, because she was hitting city for the Under the Pink tour, city after city after city, different. She did four shows in Atlanta on that tour. She's there for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this was that experience. But um, what do you think about the interracial relationships? <laughs> I'm for him. No. <laughs> Me too. I'm not sure race is something that Tori has addressed in her songwriting very often. Um, usually when she does, it's in the context of a cover, I think, or having a crush on a black boy and, ups and upside down <laughs> and pointing at a mod every time oh, she sings it. A so. mod. For details on how that made him feel, listen to our tour all year episode with Ahmad. That's an interesting story. So again, I'm trying to figure out why this story of an interracial romance would have a place on this deeply personal album mm -hmm. for Tori yeah. and what that might mean to her. Yeah. And I'm not sure I have an answer that I'm satisfied with. But usually you can help me get to a place that I am satisfied. I, I if you hope know to. what I mean. <laughs> Stop <laughs> winking at me like that. <laughs> Let's talk about interracial relationships for a minute. She says it very clearly. What was the quote you said? This is the idea of the South and interracial relationships. How does that resonate to her? I'm interested to find out too, like in her life, why on this deeply personal album, except for in the 60s and 70s, those relationships were controversial, forbidden. The idea maybe that she's, the, the idea of forbidden love, a love that's unsatisfying or a love that maybe should have, is supposed to happen, but that's not what you wanted or did is what you wanted and it didn't happen or, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the link. I mean, maybe if anything, on some small level, Tori can relate to someone who feels like an outsider because uh -huh. I have to imagine she always felt like an outsider. And from, you know, from the jump, she had a belief system um, that set her apart from the community that she was in, even her own family. Right. Um, and she kind of knew what it was like to walk in a world that was all about oppression and trying to make everyone the same, to put it simply, I guess. So, But it's not, here's the thing is it's about interracial relationships, but it's not from the perspective of the person in the interracial True. relationship. True. It's from the perspective of a person observing that person, or it's focused on the person that's observing it and is not ashamed of it maybe or i don't know it's not from mama's perspective you know yeah it is and you know tori speaks about her childhood and the south often and very fondly uh -huh. so maybe part of telling this story too is her effort to bring a little balance to it and acknowledge that the south also has a very dark and unpleasant 
um, side that one should not be proud of. And she sort of needed to make sure that she is addressing that in some way. I'm, I'm going back to I'm going back to the top of the album for a second and thinking back to when Tori has talked about um, her journey with ayahuasca and how it sort of brings up everything from the past and all the all the things that you've done, the good and the bad. And if you have been avoiding some of the bad things that you've done or that you've been involved in when you're in that place, you can't turn away from it anymore. So if this is another instance of her exploring um, some of some of that, and um, even if that just means she was part of a community or maybe even her father's church that wasn't, um, I don't know, open and compassionate to people of other races. I don't know, but there's something important to her here that she's exploring. You're right. So. You're right. It could be as simple as that. If she's going to the root of herself, what she knew as a child or what she observed in her formative years at the beginning of Tori, she says the darkness, especially the 60s and the 70s South. Right. That's what she's writing. Which is her. when she, she grew was up. Yeah. in the South as a child. So. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, if we're going to deal with all the facets that make up me, then we've got to talk about this thing that was all around me as I grew up. You yeah, I mean? this just maybe seems like right. such a left turn from the from the subject matter that Tori normally explores. So, And in that way, and I feel like the central character of the song is, an, is a neutral observer. She says, it wasn't my bullet. She's not the one who's judging the interracial relationship. Maybe that is Tori. I don't know. Maybe I mean, you're talking about where's Tori in the song. Right. And, then and she's, she's also being held responsible for some sort of violent shoot, act yeah, right. or something that happened. And then she's talking in the interview where she makes the gun sound. Uh-huh. So clearly that's her. You're right. David. <laughs> I told you. I told you you've been right before and you'll do it again. Uh, well, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Me too. Are we done? No, we have many more quotes. Time Thanks to, to Rachel, by the way, who put our show notes together. Yes. Rachel, she's an invaluable part of our team. Uh, she put the little Amsterdam show notes together, and thank you. We can't do this without you. So as far as the placement on the album, let's talk about that. Okay. Um, in the New York Times on January 14th, 1996, Tori says, I've said it. She means little Amsterdam. I've said it between two release points. Oh, I meant for you to read this quote. David, why don't you read it? <laughs> okay, good, because I feel like I'm between two release points right now. <laughs> I've said it between two release points, an intro and an outro. It helps the smell of the song. So you really get the bloop with the sweet potatoes. Well, I'm sorry, get the what? Get the what? I put it in 22-point font and bolded. Okay. So you really get the honeysuckle with the sweet potatoes and the black-eyed peas. And just like you weave down those roads in the south, you know, you're in swampland. And then you hit water and then country and sugarcane. And then you hit a gas station somewhere and you're in a town. What is she even talking about now? Like she's giving us the directions to her house. <laughs> then you hit a gas station right. somewhere. Take a left down by a Christian a town. town. You go past the mission <laughs> and then you've gotten into the Christian sound. It's like those writers as I read as a little girl, Faulkner and Williams. It's like those writers I read as a little girl, Faulkner and Williams. Is there an echo in here? <laughs> this is how I write. It's not about sitting down and putting 18 bars here or there. She smells things. She, she just pulls it in. She weaves it in. Yes. It's funny to me that she says that about this song because she's giving you all these references. And that's how I feel, feel what she's doing here. Like the black eyed peas, the sweet potatoes. She's like smelling it. She's feeling it in the moment. And it's funny that she says, that's how I write. I just kind of pull things from the ether. But this is her narratively clearest song. 
well, you keep saying that, but then we keep saying, who is this person? Who is this interracial couple? Who is Tori in this Right, song? we're trying to interpret it, but it's on the page. Like, a person can listen to this and get a story from yeah, it. Yeah. They okay. can't listen to Daisy Dead Pedals. Daisy Dead Pedals and get an A to B story. Like, where the hell? Daisy was sitting under a tree, and then what happened? Like <laughs> She was attacked by a skeleton? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> she fell? God. Um, but let's address that she did not set it between two release points in any more of a way than everything on the album is between two release points. Right. She seems to imply that there's an intro and an outro to By the song. By release point, she means songs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've set this song between two songs. I thought it would just be great between tracks 10 and 12. Oh, perfect oh. place. <laughs> perfect place for this song. Um, in the Chicago Tribune on January 18th, 1996, Tori Amos says... So when it came time to make this album, I went to Louisiana, back to the South and the Old World Church, to the place that deemed wrong Mary Magdalene and the shadow sorcerer side of the Bible. I went to reclaim that hidden womanhood, because you can't have grace without the whores. So you can't have a whole being without confronting the dark sides of yourself. You can't have light without darkness. You have to, if you're going to find the light, if you're going to discover who you are, you've got to confront your past. And your past isn't just... Your past, it's everything that makes you up. It's the soup that you're swimming around in in 1960s when you're, when you're growing up, the things you don't have any control over that give you frame of reference. So I have to believe that on some level that's what she means when she talks about the South being about the primitive mm. um, in that earlier quote. The and primal. She, the I get primal it. The primal and yeah. the primitive. Yeah. Here she says the old world church, the place that deemed wrong Mary Magdalene, and because this album is always about going to authentic power and connection to source, especially feminine energy, I think that's that's what she's tackling here. And the South was one of those places where that connection was severed, maybe. So she's going back to restore it. Yeah. One of the stops along that journey. Yeah. Plus hominy. Who doesn't like a little hominy? I'm exhausted. We did a quotes. We did the quotes section. <laughs> we did a quotes. We did a quotes. <laughs> um Last week, we played a quote that was newly recovered from Lisa Ridlon, who uh, digitized Richard Handel's uh, World Cafe 96 tape. Um, and she says, you know, it's actually, I think this is so easy to understand. And it's really funny that she said that. Tori herself yeah. says that about yeah. this song. No, about the album. Oh, Do you remember on the yes, way down? Yeah. yes, yes, yes. I think yes, this is yes, so yes, easy yes. to understand. I think this is so easy to understand. Do you really? Interesting. I mean, if you're boned up on your ancient Sumerian <laughs> mythology. And, Which we are now. Obviously. We could teach a class. Um, what's the line? Wait, wait, don't tour me. See, it works. Off a superfly sniffing a Sharpie pen, honey, it's Bill and Ben. What the fuck does that mean? And you can only interpret it the way you want to interpret it. You can get, you know, but it's, it's, you it's obtuse. Yes. But I think, and I mean, if one is in a position to have a little more information, like we happen to know using that example mm -hmm. where Tori was living mm -hmm. at the time. Bill and Ben with that, boats. Yeah. So there are things but that on a surface level seem like non sequiturs or like she's being obtuse for the sake of it and then she has woven something. Right. But I'm saying you don't need to know where Tori lived to understand the words of Little Amsterdam. Whether you get the interpretation of it, whether you have a different interpretation of it, th that's why I think anybody can listen to this song and get something out of it. Oh, yeah. Just I totally... the words are complete sentences. <laughs> It's a clear thought, whatever. But that's why I think it's been so... Not, that's not why I think it's been present so much in her live shows, but yeah. 
That's why I think it's a storytelling song. I agree with what you were saying, but where I was going with that was that sometimes it appears that Tori is not present in the song or that she's storytelling mode in story or that she's in storytelling mode. But when you dig a little deeper, she's usually very present. It's just not so obvious. And I feel like, especially at this point in her career on this album, therefore in this song, that absolutely Mm -hmm. has to be true. Okay. I see her only walking through the town and observing. But after we've talked about it a little bit, I do see that maybe she is the central character through the conversation. Probably you're right. And let's just get into the line by line. I mean, my feelings on this aren't that strong. This is not a noun verb. Oh, yeah. No, same. (laughs) Type situation, so. (laughs) Yeah, like, exactly. Like, where she is in the song isn't going to change the whole meaning of the song the way that debate did. Team noun by the way. But I will say this is interesting because while we talked about the song a little bit off air, we certainly did not approach what's the perspective of the song and who is Tori. And now we both have very strong opinions about the the point of view and where she is in the song or not in the song. So let's do the line by line. Let's just do it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Little Amsterdam in a southern town. First things first, why Little Amsterdam? Is Tori creating a fictitious town where this song takes place? And if so, why has she chosen that name? Go. Okay, interesting. That's your thought on it. Okay. That's a question. That's a question. Yeah. Is she? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. But I posit, no. I mean, Little Amsterdam is in a southern town. Right. So to me, it's either a place in the southern town or a person in the southern. So either they, she's referring to someone as Little Amsterdam for God knows what reason. You can then go on to think of what does Amsterdam represent? Loose morals, loose women, marijuana, drugs, sex. So is this person Little Amsterdam? You know, someone with loose morals who participates in sins of the flesh in this southern town or is Little Amsterdam? To me, I think it's a restaurant. You do? I do think it's a restaurant because the next line, let's listen to the next line. How many get it on the plate, girl? How many being fried corn, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, it's the main ingredient in menudo. <laughs> um, so I think it's a restaurant. So what do you think? How many get it on the plate, girl? I think Little Amsterdam is the town, the city where this story is taking place. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not literally called Little Amsterdam, but it is like Like a Little Amsterdam. Okay, okay. Um, But I definitely think it's the location. Um, You're getting even more specific with the location of a restaurant, which... Well, that's only because I see this song as one of her most literal songs, like one of her most like clear songs. So I've always thought, like, what is Little Amsterdam? It's got to be a place in a southern town. Are you at all being swayed by the fact that there is a restaurant and coffee shop relatively close to us called Little Amsterdam? Yeah, but there's also a Little Amsterdam in a southern town somewhere. When I discovered that, I thought that maybe she's singing about that specific place, Little Amsterdam in a southern town. I feel like hominy get it on the plate, girl. Hominy, the food, but also it brings to mind the word harmony. And the only place you're going to find it is on the plate, girl. Like there is no harmony. It's hominy and it's on the plate. Like we don't have harmony. We eat hominy. I don't know. There's something, there's a little, there's not, I wouldn't say go so far as to say there's wordplay there, but hominy certainly evokes the South, gives you a flavor of the place that we are. And I buy what you're saying. Maybe maybe this town isn't necessarily called Little Amsterdam, but it is a Little Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean if it's a Little Amsterdam? Where things are wild and un- uninhibited 
or at least in this particular family, you know, they're little Amsterdam. This is their part of town and, mm-hmm. you know, where there's no control and there's no I, law, I, no rule. I have to believe that this is a very intentional choice on Tori's part to mention Amsterdam and that there has to be a reason. And because this song is so much about race and an interracial relationship, um, on some level, I have to believe she chose Amsterdam because Amsterdam in the Netherlands, I mean, that city, that country has a complicated relationship in history with race, as does the United States. I happen to, can I read the quote here? Yeah. Um, I pulled up an interview with someone who was speaking about their experience as a black woman living in Amsterdam. And I thought that was interesting, especially in the context of the song. Um, race comes up for me all the time, Saxon said. In the, Nether- in the Netherlands, they say there's no such thing as race here. We don't make those types of distinctions. If you see what they call racism, that's your issue. The message that, as a society, the Dutch do not see race is a common narrative in many of the more liberal European countries. However, as sorry, this is getting really intellectual, but I'm going to read it anyway. Liberal European countries, however, as Saxon suggests, and as many black people from nations in Africa and the Caribbean who have immigrated to the, to the Netherlands can attest, the Dutch refusal to recognize race issues hardly mean that they do not exist. So I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective, but also parallel, uh, because here we are in the South where Tori's talking about the hidden and the primitive, and again, maybe things that we're not proud of or that we don't even want to acknowledge, and maybe one of those things is the way that we have treated people of color. So she's setting this in a little Amsterdam um, that kind of mirrors the experience that this woman is talking about in the Amsterdam of the Netherlands. Maybe. I don't know. I love that quote. Um, That's what I deal with a lot in my work. Uh, I work for a nonprofit. We're in a southern... We're in South Central LA, and it's not 100% Latino and Black members. And uh, this implicit bias, we talk a lot about this implicit bias that people have when you are educating white children versus brown children. And how, you know, I think it was in, I want to say 1792, that Thomas Jefferson, I'm just pulling this out of my head right here, but Thomas Jefferson said that there should be two paths of education, basically one path for white people, one path for black people. And from the the lower, oh, there are a higher education and a lower education. And from the lower education, occasionally you'll find a few bright sparks to pull from the rubbish, but they should be educated differently. And this, this idea of two different paths of education still exists today. Mm-hmm. Still, you still have your AP programs, you still have your lower education. There's a lot, there's a lot of racism in this country. And I love that you read that quote because whether or not, like here she's acknowledging it, somehow Little Amsterdam in a Southern town, whatever it is, if it is the town, if it's a part of the town, if it's a restaurant, there's something clashing. Little Amsterdam and a southern town, they don't fit together. There's Mm -hmm. something at war there. Already in the beginning, there's conflict. Whether you choose to see it or whether you pretend it doesn't exist like like the Dutch do, it doesn't make it go away. Right. It's only working through it and healing it and figuring out systems of of healing and methods to break it down that you're going to be able to heal from it. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going. All right. Mama, keep your head down. So she's obviously done something that to be shamed for or something that the people around her don't like her for or, you know, she should be embarrassed of. Keep your head down. 
True, and maybe also just kind of indicative of the way women in general are treated mm -hmm. as less than. Yeah, avert your eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mama, it wasn't my bullet. It wasn't my bullet. All right, there's the first mention of this bullet. So there's been some kind of violent act mm -hmm. that the character, the narrator of this song is being held responsible for, mm -hmm. but we're not entirely sure what that is. Okay. Well, a shooting, obviously, but... Well, yeah, but I mean, you're, you're right. We don't know. And we'll get into this. Her saying it wasn't my bullet, does that mean it wasn't her bullet or that it was her bullet? And we'll talk about that more. Okay, keep going. Don't take me back to the The range, to me, is the South, the old um, way of thinking. Don't take me back there. As she's going way down, you know, into this place again there seems to be some kind of a connection to sylvia plath here but we're not sure what that is i was able to find in a sylvia plath poem called cut uh, sylvia plath writes a celebration this is out of a gap a million soldiers run red coats everyone whose side are they on so this kind of lends itself to the theme of girl you got to know these days which side you're on but as far as the range where Tori says she was thinking about Sylvia Plath when this phrase kept popping up in her head, don't take me back to the range, other than this sort of quasi-connection, I guess, um, I wasn't really able to link the two. I'm just coming out of the cell in my brain. The play on words of brain cell. I'm just coming out of the cell in my brain. I'm just healing from this experience of the South. Don't take me back there. I don't want to go back there. Whatever this person is, this narrator, this part seems to me to be from the future, right? So a little Amsterdam in a Southern town, that whole verse seems to be thinking back, right? Do you feel that same way? Because this seems a, uh, coming to me, it seems like it's coming from a different time. Don't take me back there. Don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to go back. It's future tense now, or she's set in the future or I agree with that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Obviously the narrator has survived and gone, gotten out. We agree? Yep, I do. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out w why the range is in this song and what that reference means to you. Did you have anything else to say about Home that? Home on the range. But Deer in the answer of the play in the Buffalo Roam. Where I get tripped up there is that the range to me always refers to the West. And that song, Home on the Range, is kind of a love letter to the frontier and the West, not the South. So where does that take us? Home on the Range... I can't remember. We tried calling the guy from the Home on the Range Foundation in our Home on the Range episode, and he wouldn't take our call. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember what state they were in. <laughs> Alabama? I mean, maybe, but I still think that song and that expression is sort of inspired by going west and getting land out west and all of that. Nothing to do with the south. That's so funny, because I never thought of Home on the Range as a song about the West. It is, though. Is it really? Yeah. Are you sure? We did an episode on it. It was so long ago, I can't even remember. I get what you're saying, because you associate what the South with swamps, sir. I just don't think that when people say the range, just like that, I don't know, slang, if you will, is used to refer to the South. It refers to the West, and kind of when people were exploring that area of the country and looking for new possibilities, that's what the range was. And again, that song is kind of a love letter to that idea, so. I disagree. I'm going to beg I, to differ. Yeah, I'm not saying that I'm right, but to me, I don't. The white man made deals, a thief down to his heels. 
Well, sure, but we're talking about Native Americans, not necessarily anything and that isolated the to west. the south. I mean, that was west of Europe, but uh-huh. not the wild west California as we know it. I think it was. You always think about cowboys and Indians, right? You don't think about slavers and Indians. When I think cowboys and Indians... <laughs> we're not including this part of the discussion on the show, though. But we have to. Look it up, David. Sorry, we're going to have to take a break while we listen to our, <laughs> our Home on the Range episode. <laughs> when I think of... Native Americans, white man and Native American land stealing. I don't think of the West in terms of California, the Wild West. I think of the West, west of the Atlantic, where, the, where Columbus sailed and, and landed here. And that's what I think of. I think of stealing land in the South and pushing the Native American further and further South and, until they ran for the hills. Do you know what I mean? I feel... It's right in this territory, right in this area. But again, I could be wrong. I wasn't there. Okay, this is what comes up. Home on the Range is a classic Western folk song, sometimes called the unofficial anthem of the American West. Ah, fine. Then I don't know. We need a Sylvia Plath In 1947, it became the state song of the U.S. state of Kansas. See, that's not West. That is not the South. It's kind of the the gateway to the West, the Midwest. Mid-South? No. Whatever, fine. You win, David. You always do. So anyway, that just brings me back to what is she referencing here? What does (laughs) that have to do with the song and the South? Go. (laughs) I just think maybe she's thinking of, I don't know, the range, the gun range and the range where where the animals are in the South. The South is all-encompassing. It doesn't necessarily mean just New Orleans. I think it's the, you know, she grew up in North Carolina. That's the South. I agree with you that the narrator of the song is at a point in the future, and she doesn't want to be taken back to the range, so she's escaped something. But what is that? And I'm, I'm really going to get literal with this and kind of harp on it, I guess. But I think this is an interesting reference, and I kind of want to know why it's here. So I did a little more digging into frontier life Mm. and the idea of the range. And this might be crazy, but I'm going to read you a little quote. I dug up an article that's kind of talking about the, the West at a certain point represented possibilities and dreams for people who headed out West, as they say, but things didn't turn out to be as they'd hoped. And so I'll just start here. Even if you could survive financially, the psychological demands of frontier life were enormous. Letters from the period, many of them from women to family in the East, reveal that life on the frontier was desperately lonely. Homesteaders could go months without seeing another person. And there was always a good chance that they might never again see the family that they had left behind. So that may seem totally relevant, and maybe it is, But because everything on this album is such like a crazy kaleidoscope of story, but also Tori's experience to me, I have to at least bring up the fact that Tori herself literally went west at a certain point to follow her dreams and left behind her family. And that was a challenging experience for her for a lot of reasons, including YKTR, all of that. She felt isolated. So maybe Don't Take Me Back to the Range is a nod to that challenging period of her life when she first kind of struck out on her own to follow her dreams in the West. I don't know, but it's possible. It is possible. I was thinking while you were reading that quote, I've, re- I've heard that quote. There's something very familiar about it that made me think of the idea of homesteading. It's never occurred to me, but what the homesteaders really had to do was pick up and leave literally everyone and everything they knew mm-hmm. for the possibility of something else. They were going into the unknown, literally. Mm-hmm. There were no maps. There was no Google Earth 
you know, they didn't know if anything was out there. They had to just trust this person and how isolating that would be to know that it took you three months or however long to get there, that it's likely you're never going back. And to me, there's a desperate in that don't take me back to the range. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's something desperate where she's got her hands on something as someone's pulling her out the door and she's got her hands jammed into the doorway. Like, I don't want to go back. Please don't take me back. And to me, it's not necessarily about why can't Sorry read, although I, you know, I support your thought on it. I just feel there's something there about the gun range. There's a wordplay about the shooting range and the range of the South. Well, I'll say it again. The plot thickens when you were saying that just now specifically it was beautifully stated that homesteaders were forced to kind of leave behind their lives and everything they knew for the mere promise of something else. And they gave up all their security. And that just makes me think that at this point, Tori was also leaving the security of a relationship that kind of triggered this entire album and what she thought her life was going to look like. Suddenly that was all taken away from her. So maybe there's a piece of that here. Yeah, too. you're right. I agree with that. So I got really hung up on the range as in home on the range, but there also is, yeah, just a shooting range. So it could be nothing, nothing more than that. It's capitalized here. Is Mm -hmm. it capitalized in the lyric book? I think so, yeah. Okay. So there's some significance there. The range, Mm -hmm. the the place where it all went down. Yeah. That would become a theme in her work throughout her career. I'm thinking specifically of Sweet Sangria. You know, you've got to know which side you're to believe in. You have to know which side you're on. Are you on the good side, the bad side, the mm-hmm. right side, the wrong side? Cowboys know cowgirls ride on the Indian side. Yeah, oh, you're right. Even before. Very good point. She writes a lot about boundaries. This is a, a theme. Light, dark. Know thyself. Discover thyself. Mm-hmm. Be true to thyself. Russia has a line about both sides too, yeah. right? Yeah, even as recently as Russia. Flavor. Wow. Mama got a the brown man. Okay, so we're setting up the narrative, the A plot. Uh huh. The A plot. That being the interracial romance. Right. It's just funny because, again, something else I say every episode. M- my experience with a lot of these songs has stayed with me since I was 17. Mm-hmm. And now I go back and even just like look at a line differently. I always heard mama got shit as she didn't get anything. But now I'm looking at it as oh, they gave her shit because really? she loved a brown man, which seems so obvious now that we're talking about yeah. it. But <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. I never looked at it the other way. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, mama, it's always been to me, mama got messed with. And yeah. yeah. They gave her shit. Yeah. yeah. Mama got shit. She loved Makes a brown man. Way more sense. Yeah. Then she built a bridge in the sheriff's bed. The plot thickens here for me. She slept with a sheriff. She built a bridge in the sheriff's bed. So she's trying to smooth things over. And the way to do that was to sleep with the sheriff. Agreed. So obviously something's gone down. Either she's forbidden from loving the brown man and she's building a bridge to avoid penalty or arrest or whatever if you're being literal. Or there's so many cases of a white woman loving a brown man or having a, an interaction, a sexual interaction or a sexual relationship, I mean, with a black man and the black man being beaten for it, especially in this time, in the civil rights era as well. Whether it was consensual or not, 
it's not the white woman who's going to pay the price. It's the black man that's going to pay the price. And I think she means black man. I don't think she means a Latino man. Just to be clear about what the story is that I think she's telling, she's talking about a black man. Mm -hmm. In this case, I think you're absolutely right. There was going to be um, some kind of fallout, some repercussions for the man, most likely in this case, and that maybe she's exchanging some kind of sexual favor to prevent that from happening right. and to protect him to protect so, him exactly yeah, yeah. she'd do anything to save her man well again she'd do anything to save her man so right. i guess that solves that, that support, mystery right. so in the moment eve you're, i'm really wrong, going David. line it's, by line it's not that she would do I'm anything not jumping ahead no it's not that she would do anything to save her man she would do anything <laughs> 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 Thank you. <laughs> we saw the mystery of why she does that live. You see how I love So in my opinion, you want to hear my opinion on this I line? I do. I think this is her olives, they are cold pressed. An olive being a, refer- a reference to an olive branch, which you extend like a bridge of peace, you know, a white flag, you ra- raise a white flag, you extend the olive branch. But then also her olives are cold press. That doesn't sound very inviting or enticing. I feel like I just see a man's stubby, pasty, white, cold, clammy hands on her olives, squeezing her boobs or squeezing her. That's vivid. Yeah. yeah. I, I see this woman like looking off to the side and the camera's like from a low angle, shoot, you know, coming up at her and he's manhandling her and she's kind of got to get through this to like, save her man to do right. anything you know what i mean i see that as being part of that story her olives are cold pressed yeah and her best friend is her sundress i can see that so she's letting him use her body exactly and she's not sort of present in that moment and she's just yeah, yeah. that's what i think and her best friend is a sundress the best friend being the sundress a sundress is really easy access like you can mm-hmm. almost do anything and get away with it quick and easy yeah but that's also very feminine so i'll say again here she's maybe using manipulating a man using her feminine wiles if you will to get herself and the man that she cares about out of the situation so agreed so whatever happened she feels the need to reiterate and we're building tension we know something's coming right we know that a crime is about to occur because she's the narrator's indicating it wasn't me who did what happened, whatever it is that's coming, right? Mm-hmm. She repeats it again. It's mm-hmm. obviously very important. It's something I mm-hmm. feel is building and brewing. You know, you've, now you've got this woman who's trying to save her man's life, trying to not cause him harm. And I think you can piece together that this man, something happens to this mm-hmm. man anyway, mm-hmm. whether or not she built that bridge. No. I think that means... But seriously, this time, you guys. I don't take me back to the so here we are. We just came out of the cell in the first verse, Tori, and now we're back to the range. Don't take me. Don't take me back to the range. So okay, let's talk about the range again for a second. Okay, could be a gun range. Right. There's definitely a gun mm-hmm. involved in this song because there's a bullet. Someone was shot. And the narrator is being held responsible for that. I'm also thinking back to the 120 minutes interview from the eve of this album's release when Tori is talking about the album artwork with Matt Pinfield. Mm-hmm. And sh- let's play that. Okay. Play that. It's a crossroads. 
this album, and um, there's the dead cock on my right side and the live snake on my other side. And um, I think I'm turned around, I think it's my right <laughs> And I know that it's a moment where with the gun, I'm bringing up me in a gun, of course, which is part of the first thing that I ever put out. Um, and this whole record claiming my, um, you know, my past coming full circle, the things that are, the anger that needs to go and get screamed about and then released and, and the joy that comes. So she brings that up. So that was important enough for her. So that incident, that story from Tori's past is somehow present on this You're album. You're very, very for right. Her yeah. Because she brings it up in the context of the album art. So I feel like, again, there's a thread of a violent encounter from Tori's life in this story that's being thrown into the blender with all of these other elements. Okay. You're okay. So you, okay. Let me see if I'm following you because this is really, really interesting. Me and a Gun being the first thing she ever put out, which is a telling of her own story. Right. Based on her own story. Mm -hmm. And she does say what she just said to Matt Pen Pinfield, which you just heard. I've always looked at that gun on the cover. If me and a gun puts her against the gun, she's fighting the gun and the man on her back. The man has the gun. Right. She now, doesn't she's have the taken gun. the gun. Yeah. And she's no longer the victim. And that's how I've always looked at the gun on the cover uh -huh. as being no longer the victim, but I've never looked at her as being a perpetrator. And here maybe having the gun, saying it wasn't my bullet, which takes me back to, was it her bullet? Is she lying? Is she telling the truth? She's certainly saying it wasn't my bullet a lot. She doth protest too much, so maybe it was her bullet. Who mm. knows? But if you're saying there's a threat of her own personal life in here, something who that happened to her, right? weaved into this song, The Violent Act. Mm-hmm. You have, a, you have a quote you wanted to read, right? I do. And so maybe there's a couple things happening here. And I, But first, I guess we'll address a little bit more me and a gun and the narrative of that story that we all know. I think that's present here too. And she's still sort of um, working her way through that and kind of coming to terms with the fact that if that man, whoever he was, had been killed or been made to pay for whatever he had done, that she would be more than okay with right, that right and that's just part of what's being explored in the song the idea of tori wanting to kill someone or exact revenge on someone right. and i think it could very literally be that man from the me and a gun story at least in part something else that i've wanted to talk about that i think has been subtly woven into tori's songs in the past um is that she has referenced just maybe maybe twice, very few times. Another another instance of um, sexual violence and abuse from her childhood. And usually when she talks about something like that, it's all about um, Mina Gunn, something that um, we're all kind of familiar with. So um, I have a quote from one of the few times that she's mentioned it, and I'm sorry, it disappeared from my phone. So I'm this is from the German magazine Die Zeit. Thank you. It's actually from 99, and she's talking about Black Dove and um, kind of having recurring nightmares. But then she goes on to say, The nightmares agonized me since my childhood. I'm the daughter of a Methodist preacher, and as a child, I was sexually abused by a friend of the family. I think that the nightmares are telling me things about me I need to know. And that's really just kind of casually 
peppered into that conversation. She doesn't elaborate. The person conducting the interview, at least with what we've been given, doesn't say anything. So the fact that that has really not been addressed by Tori herself, um, nor been sort of pinpointed by fans or the media, anyone else, is very, very interesting to me. So I feel like there's some something else that she's exploring, that there's maybe more than one violent encounter rooted in her childhood that um, she's processing here. And that's another perpetrator that maybe she feels should have paid, or maybe in some way in that particular instance, whoever that person was, that man was, did pay. And Tori was somehow being held responsible for that. Maybe if for no other reason, then she told someone what happened. Um, and in that way, I also can't untie some that that story and maybe parts of this song from something like Climb, which also seems to be about this incidence, in my opinion. And there's a line about something like, your penance for the woman you'll become. So I feel like there's there was some sort of fallout from that. Tori was held responsible. Maybe she brought someone down. I don't know. There's a lot There's a lot happening here, but I have to believe that it's all kind of threaded through and we have so little information um, that all we can do is kind of piece it together with what we have. But um, I think there's a lot more going on in the song than meets the eye for Tori herself anyway. And this was one of those instances where she was cloaking herself in a lot of storytelling to protect herself from having to answer questions or talk about things that she didn't really want to talk about. And I absolutely think the same is true of Icicle, that that song is way more about this subject matter than the cute story about, um, you know, masturbating when she was a little girl. I think that's kind of the smokescreen that she puts out to distract from what she's really exploring in that song. Just my opinion, but I kind of want to do Icicle Remastered because I think it's fascinating. The I could have, I should have, right. I didn't, and how mad she gets Yes, about the fact that she didn't. Yes. I could have, I should have told someone. Right. Like that could mean a lot of things. Yeah. I'm floored, David. girl <laughs> <laughs> So these lyrics are not in the booklet. Why do you suppose that is? You think it's improv in the studio? Yeah, I do. Kind of the same way that, you know, that bridge of liquid diamonds seems improvised and mm -hmm. she doesn't include it, mm -hmm. include it in the lyrics for, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But she always performs them live as is on the yeah. album. She doesn't change them. So, yeah. I mean, they are the lyrics to the song as far as I'm concerned. Right, exactly. <laughs> Hey, got a room and a place for two. Got to go and a phone. That is a measure of class in this character's world. Mm. You got a goat. You got a phone. Like you're living or the opposite. You're not living. All you have is a goat and a phone. I, yeah, maybe it's more that because you are my Fifth Avenue. But all I've got is a goat and a phone. Granny Clampett, right, which Tori right. also references yeah. in that same 120 Minutes yeah. interview. So I can't also help but think that got a room and a place for two is an invite. Come on over. Why is it a girl in the city and not a boy? You think the person delivering that line is a man or a woman? I think it's a. I still think it's the narrator grown up. She's moved out of Little Amsterdam or out of the southern town. And now she's all alone, got a girl in the city, so she's a lesbian. Hey, got a room and a place for two. Got a goat and a phone. Yeah, I'm not sure. I kind of feel like the first two lines could be 
being delivered by the man in the situation and then it shifts back to the female perspective but he doesn't have a girl in the city but he doesn't i would say that too but he doesn't have a girl in the city because she's got a goat and a phone so she's not in the city she's in the country somewhere but that's like saying hey i've got like a piece on the side like i've also got a girl in the city okay that makes sense I can't go through the line. I said, boy, you are my Fifth Avenue without thinking of a Lisa very B. <laughs> special shout out to Lisa B, who has used that as her AIM chat name since I've ever known her. Still has it? I asked her if she wanted to be on this episode. She said, despite that being associated with me, it's not one of my favorite songs. She, How dare you? She declined. Can you believe it? The people who've declined have been Lisa B and the drum programmer from Cotolite Sneeze. <laughs> who also programmed the drums here and wanted to pass on the message that this was one of the most rewarding experiences of his professional right. career. Right, and Lisa B said that exchange with you was one of the most satisfying email exchanges of her life. And right? said that that was one of her most satisfying AIM names. <laughs> and she's worked with Latoya Jackson. <laughs> and she's aimed with Latoya Jackson. <laughs> round and around and around that goal. Round and around this time for keeps. Round and around and around that goal. Round and around this time for keeps. So whatever's going on, I think it's cyclical. It's just happening again and again and again. I don't know if this is from the future. It feels like this is from the future a little bit. I think this section really speaks to the quote. Um, that we read earlier where Tori says, but what if, what does she say? It would have been okay or it would have been different if she just lost him. So I think here she's really exploring being trapped in a cycle of her own thoughts where she's wishing she would have done something differently. And there's maybe even a little bit of fantasy playing out there like, oh, like if only I just shot him like this time for keeps. What if, and it's all playing out differently in her head where this time she actually does away with that person Mm -hmm. well yeah i'm glad that you said that because i have been saying through this whole line by line that i think maybe she's guilty even though she's saying it wasn't my bullet i point to this who would be saying that except for a guilty person who has a soul that needs to be saved that Mm -hmm. no one else can save except for god but for a guilty person you know so obviously she's got guilt she's done something that only god can can cleanse her of right so then we got round and around and around I go, round and around this time for keeps. And in the background, let's play the, that. Say a word to the hangman for me. Right. She's killed someone. Yeah. Say, you know, say a word to the hangman for me. You're sending someone to their death. So that I point to that as saying she it was her bullet, but she can't tell her mama. She can't tell her mama that she killed the man that she loved for whatever crimes he committed. And now that after you've had that, what you just talked about, which is really resonating with me now, and you've talked about it a couple of times, not so clearly, where I feel like you're 100% correct. Mm. And hearing that, hearing this bridge, I see her in the song now. I see her as the one who committed the violent act in the song now. Yeah. And again, I keep wanting to jump ahead to the live section, I guess, but this part of the song on the do drop in tour anyway really became a prolonged um improv i guess save it save that please okay because we got i've got so many to show okay good do we that's a little double entendre there maybe the only thing better than roses on your piano is two lips on your organ but (laughs) (laughs) you prepared that did you make that up i didn't it just came to me (laughs) yes i think that is a double entendre yeah i think she's obviously talking about sucking dick that must count for something Oh dear yeah and playing that organ and it's i mean obviously she's talking about that surface level is 
you know, as a church organist, I must have scored myself enough points to get myself out of this jam. You know, it must count for something. Yep. And then underneath it's my willingness to play the other kind of organ exactly, must also will, yeah, yeah like get I've, me out of this somehow or, mama built a bridge yeah. in the sheriff's bed right. it's got it yeah is this the mother singing maybe playing that organ must count for something or i've always looked at it as guilty the guilty person or the character who now i think is tori yeah i don't think it's the mother character i think it's we'll say tori for shorthand whoever the narrator is i think that's her perspective for sure at this point yeah <laughs> It's interesting to note that in this verse, she doesn't say which side you're on. You just got to know these days, dot, 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 which mm-hmm. is a lot more open. You know, what do you got to know these days? The truth, the lies, yourself. You know, she doesn't finish the sentence, which I think is so poetically beautiful. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so poetic. You're finishing the sentence for her when she could mean something completely different. So I just wanted to say that about that line. Shut down today. Does that take you back to a restaurant too? A restaurant yeah. shutting down? Yeah. Whatever mama, whatever happened to mama, whatever mm-hmm. happened to this man, the shame of it all, the violent nature of it all, whatever it was, restaurants closed. Mama was the waitress. Get it on the plate, girl. Hominy. Get it on the plate, girl. Mm-hmm. You know, calling an order back for the hominy. I could see that. I could also just see almost kind of a ghost town, the remnants of this place. And again, she's looking back um, that literally shut down and all the people moved on because of a violent history. Um, but the next line is also referring to a burial. I buried her with a, a butter bean bouquet. So maybe the town also just literally shut down for that day because everyone was going to this funeral. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So not permanently, but just right. for the day. Because mama's dead, right? Mm-hmm. What's a butter bean bouquet? I don't know. Do you think it's some kind of edible arrangement? I think it's a play <laughs> on baby's breath bouquet, butter bean bouquet, southern. Again, butter beans are very south. Mm-hmm. Butter bean bouquet and the alliteration. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't think it exists, but it sounds delicious. That's better than an edible arrangement. <laughs> okay, the sheriff. Wait, 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 wait. Let's talk about mama dying. So we've spent this whole song building up the violent act. And here we've learned what the violent act was. She's dead, not him after all, which is, you know, or maybe him too. Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You're right, you're right. But she's dead too. Mama is supposed to be, not the heroine, I think the narrator is supposed to be, well, the protagonist is the narrator, right? Mama's supposed to be someone, Mama, keep your head down. You're supposed to be on Mama's side, right? You feel at the beginning that you're on Mama's side. Yeah. But the, then how did Mama die? Did, did, <laughs> can't keep saying mama mama um did did mama not successfully save the man or herself did did the sheriff kill them both because then the next line is the sheriff now can't right away well here's the interesting thing maybe round and around and around i go what is the round of bullets it's a round of bullets round and around another layer of possible meaning exactly say a word to the hangman for me and then another round and around and around I go. Say a word to the hangman for me, me, my babe. Mm-hmm. So there's two, maybe there's two murders. I mean, there are two murders. The man, you, you didn't kill the white woman, but not the black man. The black man's dead too, if the white woman's dead. Or she jumped in the way and then they killed the black man. But you know what I'm saying. You don't, in this story, kill the white woman and not the black man. Uh-huh. 
so they buried her with a butterbean bouquet, or even if they buried him, they buried a piece of her with him. You know, maybe he's the butterbean bouquet. They buried her with the butterbean bouquet. With, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. Again, um, another layer of meaning with round and around potentially referring to gunfire. I, for me, I will not be able to go down that route too far. I still think of the narrator being sort of in a cycle of her own thoughts and playing out this revenge fantasy. But but the whole tone of the music changes and you don't see maybe gunfire in there? Not literal gunfire that the narrator herself is responsible for. Because again, the way the song is set up is that she's being blamed or held responsible for something that she didn't do, but that she could have done or condones on some level because someone is being punished for something that they did and they deserve it. Okay, you're probably right. But as the, as the song has evolved live, and we'll discuss, and we'll, I don't want to say too much like you about the live section, but she does follow it up with, you just watch her die, die, da 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 You know what I mean? Like, there's death in this round and round and round I go. We'll get there. In the now, can't ride away Like he into the sunset so I take that to mean that Mama was not able to save herself or the man that she was in love with and that the sheriff killed them both to punish them for their forbidden interracial love, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. The sheriff, whatever happened, the sheriff was being punished for it. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting with the next line. And I won't say that he shouldn't have paid But Mama was my bullet. So again, we go back to the he, but to me, it's not the sheriff. It's not mama's lover or whatever you want to call it. So there's this other sort of character that's veiled in mystery to mm-hmm. me. I think it's a lover. I won't say that he shouldn't have paid. That's always been a tricky line. So you like, think the narrator killed yeah. mama's boyfriend, Ye- essentially? Maybe. Why? Or wanted him dead for some reason? I don't think that actually... Um, I think that this line in, uh, refers to shooting the sheriff. I think that the big surprise at the end when she says, I won't say that he shouldn't have paid um, after you learn he can't ride into the sunset. The big surprise at the end is when she says, Mama, it wasn't my bullet, is that he's dead. And you either do or you don't infer that she shot him. To me, he shouldn't have paid means he was murdered and I didn't do it, but I'm willing to say he deserved it. She says, again, going back to that quote about the song, the struggle of knowing I could kill him, knowing he should be killed. Yeah. Knowing I'm totally fine about it. Yeah. But to me, this he that is dead that paid is not the brown man. It's a totally different character to me. To me, it's the sheriff. She just has placed the sheriff, not necessarily in jail. Maybe she killed the sheriff. Maybe the sheriff violated the mother and she kills him. There's two murders. Mama's one of them. They buried her with a butter bean bouquet. Mm-hmm. And the sheriff, the sheriff now can't ride away into the sunset, like he said, because he's dead. Mama slept with the sheriff right. to protect herself right. and the man that she was involved with. Right. Nevertheless, the sheriff still killed Mama. Right. And the quote unquote brown man avenged her death by then in turn killing the sheriff. Oh, interesting. So the brown man is still alive at the end of all of this. Oh. And maybe one horrible thing that the sheriff did 
was put mom in the position of having to have sex with him to save her boyfriend, but he probably also did many other unsavory things. So she's acknowledging that he deserved to be killed and that she may have had a reason herself for wishing him dead, but she didn't actually kill him. I can see that. I don't know. No, I can see that. (laughs) So having talked through that, I have to believe that the sheriff in this song symbolizes male aggression, male power and dominance, and men who use sex to control women. So that character of the sheriff embodies all of that. And he could be a lot of different people and probably is a crazy amalgamation of any number of people, including possibly the man from Me and a Gun, and also the man from that incident in Tori's childhood that she referenced in the article. So, See, like I said at the beginning, one of her clearest songs. <laughs> Let's take a break. Let's listen to Yanta. You can support Yanta at patreon.com slash Yanta. Here's Yanta performing Little Amsterdam. Enjoy. Just those opening notes. We said it in the last episode, but it perfectly complements the end of Way Down. I agree. Best transition on the album for me between those Easy. two tracks. Easy. That knock to keep sort of the rhythm and to sort of stop it before it starts. I feel like that was totally in the moment. Like she couldn't help herself. Yeah. She's doing a little tap like she does sometimes live. Yeah. Yes. And I love that that makes it on the album. I, well, I don't think she had any choice. It's in the recording. Well, I don't think present day Tori would include something like that. It would be airbrushed out right. somehow. Right. I love the way she says bullet. You've got that hard knock punctuating the line before, and then you've got hard plosive. And we don't talk about that enough, the way she punctuates with it. We don't talk about hard plosives nearly enough on this show. <laughs> My but plosives w- have never been so hard. But how she punctuates the bullet, it's great. Yeah. It's like a little bullet in itself. This is my favorite musical moment throughout the song, is the radio tuning in. You hear a transistor radio, sort of the static. I, it, you feel very isolated. You feel very far south. You feel very far away from anything modern. It just places her out in the darkness and under a starry sky, no city lights. You're just trying to tune in something on the radio. I agree, Tori really creates a, a world with this song. And she's talked a lot about I don't know, what does she say? Sonic architecture mm-hmm. or building a space that is a song that you can walk into. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely think she accomplishes that mm-hmm. in this case, for sure. And not enough can be said about Caton, And this is why they work together so well, mm-hmm. because he doesn't take a lead. He simply texturizes it in the world that she's already living in. And they just kind of had that shorthand. This is, I think, why she has him come out on stage with her for the song, because he does give that sort of southern twang feel to it, just a light touch of it. This is becoming like podcast bingo. Um, But I'll say it again, texture. That radio tuning is subtle and again just adds texture to the song. And she considered it integral enough, I guess, to include it when she did it on Do Drop In. Like, they had that radio sound going, so. Yeah.
clavichord here. Love that too. It sounds haunted, broken down music box or something, kind of winding its way, pulling itself through the landscape of the song at that point. I don't know. It's just cool, for lack of a better word. And again, shows the restraint that she had. Like this whole other instrument comes in for like a few seconds of the song and we never hear it on the album again, right? right. So. And now of course there's a change in that melody. There's a little off kilter, uh, off key. Something's not right in Little Amsterdam. I love mama. <laughs> Take a down You've got mail. Posted to RMTA by Nicolas on December 7th, 1998. Sarah, if it makes you feel better, actually thought Tori was singing She's Chasing Tomatoes until Damien ever so politely corrected me. So don't feel so bad, smiley face. Speaking of misunderstood lyrics, I still have no bleepity bloop bloop clue what she's singing on Little Amsterdam at about 2.58. I understand the first three lines of improv, but the fourth line is a mystery. Hey, got a room and a place for two? Got a what and a what? Here are my guesses. Got a phone and a gun, I said. Or, got a goat and I varnish it. <laughs> or perhaps, got a quad and a vonisato, don't ask, hugs and a frosted frog smay. <laughs> we, we were so innocent back then on the list, David. Oh my god. Uh, we tried to find Nicholas. Nicholas, but Dead. he didn't ever put, <laughs> he didn't ever put his last name and Shaggy refused to read it. I don't know why. I can't believe Boys it. Boys for Pele. Boys for Pele. Boys for Pele. Baby. <laughs> Little Amsterdam is definitely one of my favorite songs on the entire album. I think the entire track has a very magnetic feeling to it that is almost akin to watching a stage play. The themes of the southern gothic and what's hidden are very creepy and engaging and they make the song a delight to follow, although extremely foreboding at the same time. The themes of what's hidden, both within ourselves and what we must hide from others, sometimes for our own safety, are very apropos for the inner feelings that we're beginning to explore in the album and they're manifested very well in this narrative of betrayal, fear, acceptance to some or lesser degrees and for this reason it's one of my favorite tracks to come to and its creepiness has even inspired me to write a short story once for a senior fiction class easily one of my top tens
from the Sideways Society and Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. This is Wait, Wait, Don't Tour Me, your Tori Amos trivia quiz. We have a full studio audience here today, and they're all ready to play... Wait, Wait, Don't Tour Me! Oh, bountiful bacon-fed harlot, thou canst proceed to insert it in the most vaguely defined of places. Oh my god. I have... Literally no clue. Alexander, would you like to steal? Bacon Harlot is my new favorite insult. <laughs> to get immediate access to this and other exclusive episodes, head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos and subscribe today. Jessica, would you like to steal? I couldn't hear it. Could you repeat it again? Correct. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was ready to give it to you. That's patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos and become a supporter today. Wait, wait, don't Tori! Posted by Mo to Yelp, July 29th, 2012. Little Amsterdam is the worst place I've ever been for a group brunch. Cold and unfriendly owner who works in the kitchen as the cooking guy. On a Friday morning after a hike, I went there with a group of five of my friends for brunch. The store was half full. The waitress was nice and led us to the table. We were waiting for the order and the owner came and really told us, I am busy, I have no brunch for you. He seems to be angry. I went to talk to him about the reason and the way he approached us, and he mentioned, I am here for 30 years, I have my local customers, and I don't need new customers. I have never seen somebody talk to his customer in front of his other customers in this way. All my friends were shocked. I mentioned to him that I will post my experience on the Yelp. On that day, we did brunch at the Country Inn in Saratoga. It was awesome. Nice place with a good brunch and great service. Here's a cover of Little Amsterdam from a long time ago by Luke Myers.
Uh, well, we've done it, David. We've made it to another live section. Tori's performed this song a total of 231 times over the last 22 years. Jesus. Jesus. She debuted the song on the 23rd of February in Ipswich. You want to hear that? Is this the part where you say, too bad, we don't have it. No. Oh. But we don't have it. <laughs> God damn it. Sorry, David. Eve has told that joke a total of 231 times. <laughs> don't start with me, David. <laughs> so here's the first recording we have of Little Amsterdam. This is March 5th, 1996 in Newcastle. Notable, of course, she's throwing in a little bit of Godspell. She would continue to do that throughout the European tour and into the United States tour for at least a couple of months, and then she would revert back to it occasionally. Um, here's the first time she performed it in Amsterdam, just a stellar version, March 16th, 1996, and possibly where a certain website gets its name. talk about this tour and what the song yeah looked like on this tour okay because earlier in the episode you had a theory about why tori performed this song so often i'm sorry i've changed my mind and do you want to hear my new thought no i'm good (laughs) yes yes please (laughs) my thought is the reason she performed this song so often because she was really proud of it i think this is in her mind probably one of the most successful tracks on voice for pele because she creates that world so successfully i think maybe that's why she performed it not that she just didn't feel emotionally attached to it and i didn't mean to imply that anyway if that's what i said but she she, didn't imply anything that is literally what you said i don't think i said that she wasn't emotionally attached to it you know you didn't say she was emotionally attached that she didn't have to go to an emotional emotional place place. you're right but now that you've changed my mind i we i i'm willing to admit when i'm wrong on the rare occasion that it happens. Not me. Okay, so finish what you were saying. Having the experience of listening to the album before seeing the tour, I never would have guessed that this song would be a centerpiece, a showpiece um, for that or any other tour because it's not not a Hey Jupiter um, 
or an obvious song. So I was kind of surprised when she not only performed it pretty much every night, but that she also embellished it a lot. Um, as we said, she, I'll say, cared enough to include the radio static noise mm-hmm. to kind of create the world of the song. And then when we get to the round and around and around we go, you know, that continued to evolve over the tour and become more dramatic until we get to the Father Only You Can Save My Soul and playing that organ and she would smack her hand on the piano and really belt must count for something. So I know you've walked back your statement, but I couldn't disagree more with your earlier statement that she didn't have to We've go all grown up to in the last few hours. Um, an emotional place to sing the song. In fact, I think this was one of the points on that tour when she was very present in the song and w- working stuff out and that it almost became an exorcism the same way the Wash Me Clean um, versions of Precious Things did. Um, and I also happen to think that in both cases she's kind of exercising the same demon and having listened to most of the live 96 versions let's take a walk through that evolution you want to yep let's do that now march 29th in milan May 11th in New Haven, The Late Show. By this point, she's playing around with the Go Little Girls section. She's no longer throwing in any of the Dear Lord, These Things I Pray. Here we go. She is in Oakland, July 11th. This is the first time she adds names to the bridge, but not the last. July 17th in Seattle. Vancouver. That's right, right, Weird one in Portland. Right, 
So I want to divert a little bit, uh, just slightly. It sounds to me in this improv, uh, like she's starting to work out Black Dove from Choir Girl. Um, I'm going to play two clips back to back. One's in Cedar Rapids on July 26th, and the next one's in Dayton, Ohio, August 3rd. And it just sounds to me like she's playing around with some of the bits of Black Dove or coming up with some of the bits. So I think the possible Black Dove connection is really interesting, especially in light of what David said earlier um, about that quote, about the abuse that runs through Black Dove and possibly runs through Little Amsterdam. Um, this next one we've been demanded to play by Kayla from Australia. This is Erie, Pennsylvania. Anyway, here's one of my favorite performances. This is from the Rain concert, 1997, January 23rd. And this will forever, I just love this moment. And I think everybody that has seen it loves it. Here we go. Ooh, little girl, that's right, Beanie. So she performed it a total of 119 times on Jesus. the two-drop-in two <laughs> tour. 120, if you count Rain, as part of that tour. Um, let's move on to 98 Plugged. Here's the first recording we have from 1998. This is June 23rd in Frankfurt, recorded for the radio. My, it was my bullet. I don't, I don't. Don't take me
fine, but it doesn't have anything on this. This is my favorite, one of my singular favorite versions of this song. There's nothing in the world like this. She's never done it before or since that I know of. This is her opening Little Amsterdam with a crazy intro. And we're going to play the whole thing because this has to be preserved on record, on podcast record. All right. Here it is, September 13th, Eugene, Oregon. I was at that show. Went backstage, too. You know. I did. I don't need to. Just saying. Always brag. Kiss me on the mouth. No tongue. We're not speaking to David right now.
Don't Did she talk about it at all backstage when no. she, she kissed you on the mouth? No, I had other problems. Well, oh my god! Well, I can't talk <laughs> about that right now, Tori. I was campaigning for Lucifer, and I had to, you know, take that moment. You're like, yeah, to yeah, really... yeah. Oh, Susanna, but it wasn't Lucifer. Uh, Susanna? Who cares? Lucifer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Did you love it? Were people on the floor over it? I mean, at that point, it was an embarrassment of riches. Tori was in top form, so I'm not saying that that moment wasn't amazing, but we were getting a lot of moments like that. But that was more than improv. That almost became like a fully formed song. But it was only that one time. Yeah, it was only that one time, yeah. I put that on my Instagram. You can still go find it, I-I-E. I paired that with a video, a slideshow of Suzanne Sugarbaker <laughs> from Designing Women, just obviously. So talk about the arrangement of Little Amsterdam. Well, it had been solo on the previous tour, of course, because it was just Tori and Caton. So here we have the full band arrangement, and it's very faithful to the album version, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but full and alive, you know, because the drums are there. Yeah. She did it 22 times on that tour. So let's go to 99. She did it three times that in 99. She did it in Cincinnati, in New York, Charlotte. What do you want to hear? Charlotte. Charlotte, because it's the South, right? Yeah. Were you thinking that? Okay. Let's hear it in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was also the tour debut. And I was there also. Okay. Just saying. All right. Now that we've established you win, what did you think of the arrangement? It's very similar to Plugged, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. didn't change that much, Mm -hmm. which is fine. Didn't need to. Steve's doing some really interesting stuff on the guitar in this version, too. Um, And it serves to note, of course, it's the last tour he'll play on the song because they stopped playing together. So let's move to 2001, Strange Little Tour. Strange. So 2001, she performs it on the roads and the piano, and mm-hmm. it gives it really that sort of southern, watery texture, that swampy. Um, and I think more often than not, it was the first song that she performed. I'm not counting 97 Bonnie and Clyde, but I think it, when it appeared in a set, that was usually where she placed it. So she did it 23 times on this tour. And here is a fantastic little improv intro from Philadelphia. And there's a video... So when we get to our video versions on YouTube, (laughs) eventually, you'll see it. Sometimes about the queen, well, 
She did it 23 times on the Strange Little Tour, and here's the final performance of that tour in Milan with a little omen of something to come. Her mama got sure she loved a brown man that she built a bridge in the sheriff's bed. In 2002 and 2003, she was on Scarlet's Walk, and she performed it. David, take a guess. Um, Don't look at the paper in front of you. It has the number. It's too late. Damn. 16. It was Little Amsterdam's Sweet 16. It's that hominy and the honeysuckle. <laughs> so here's a little bit from March 3rd, 2003 in New York City. Um, this just illustrates that you watch her die portion that we talked about a little earlier. So you roam So 2005, Summer of Sin, she performed it 15 times. Quinceanera. So here is one of the performances released officially on one of the original bootlegs. This is April 19th, 2005 in Denver. I think this is pretty emblematic of the way she performed it on an organ and the piano simultaneously. Round and around and around I go. Round and around this time for keys. Round and around and around I go. Round and around this time. Round and around and around I go. Round and around this time for keys. Round and around and around I go. Let's also not forget that this was the tour where Tori finally let her freak flag fly. Oh, David, 2007. It's so nice. Look at my razor phone. I have a razor phone. Oh, me too. I could take pictures with mine. Anyway, she did it how many times in 2007? Eight. Who did she perform it as? She performed it as Clyde. Clyde. 
Why do you think that is? Clyde's the hidden. Clyde has got the hair over her face, and she holds the ribbon up in front of her eyes. Clyde did rattlesnakes, right? Because a girl needs a gun these days. Oh, interesting. Didn't Clyde do a couple of songs about sexual violence? Um, Little Earthquake. She also did Juarez. Um, So I want to play something from 2007. Now, you can go back to the Legs and Boots, and you can pick any one of the five officially released versions. you got Phoenix, Lawrence, Kansas, Boston, Houston, and Melbourne, Florida. And all of those have a version of Little Amsterdam on it. And they're all really good, actually. But unfortunately, I found that the guitars were a little reduced in this track and it's you know she hadn't toured with guitar since 1999 so this is 2007 um, and there's this little guitar uh, back and forth in the bridge that I really wanted to play but it's highlighted best on Santa Barbara just an audience recording uh, where the guitars hadn't been reduced in the mix you can kind of just understand it a little bit better so here's Santa Barbara 2007 and Dan Phelps on guitar sort of going back and forth with Tori a little bit. Two thousand nine Simple Attraction Tour. Tori Amos performed this song seven times. Let's listen to some, David. This is Atlanta, Georgia, the twenty seventh of July, with her Touch Myself Improv. God, what, what was that? I don't know. This girl is sinful. It's attractive, but it's sinful. <laughs>
If you're listening, you'll hear a few guitar swells, and of course that's John Evans who'd picked up the guitar for this tour. After performing it on every tour since 1996, Tori Amos took a break from performing Little Amsterdam in 2010 on her summer tour and continued that break through 2011, the Night of Hunters tour, and into 2012, the Gold Dust Orchestral tour. Oh. So she didn't perform it at all for almost five years when she performed it in 2014 on the Unrepentant Geraldine's tour. And here's I'm- the tour debut of that in May in Little Amsterdam itself. Bless, girl. God bless. I am surprised that it wasn't performed on Night of Hunters. I have to walk back one of my earlier statements. This was a proper tour where the song was not performed, not a summer festival tour or whatever. Yeah. So, huh. yeah. She did not perform it in 2015 on the festival tour, but she brought it back 10 times in 2017 on the Native Invader tour, of which I saw every American show. Mm-hmm. Here's one of my favorite performances. This is from Durham, November 11th, 2017. Uh, she performed Little Amsterdam after Way Down, which had only happened one other time before in uh, Atlanta 2014. And would happen only one other time after that in Denver of the 2017 tour also. So anyway, here's Durham. This is great. course here's the last time she's performed it this is december 1st 2017 in la Like he said into the sun set and I won't say that he shouldn't have paid. But mama, it wasn't my 
2020, when we go on tour, I want to get an umbrella. I want to get a tent that says drive all night, the songs of Tori Amos, and tour all night on the other side. Slash fortune telling. No, I know, like one of those like awning tents. And I want to, when, when she announces what venue she's going to be in, I want to call all the venues and do what I have to do to get permit to park it outside so that we set up before the show, talk to people, we do our pre-show, and you go, you you man the tent while I go watch the show. And then I come I'm back out. I'm in the tent while yes, you're watching the that's show? That's how it has to be. I need a better agent. <laughs> 2017, I want to say that was a great arrangement of yeah. the song, right? Yeah. Really, Didn't she really use the Leslie cabinet? Yes, she did. But that song, again, interesting, like what, I can't pin down what's worth Tori's effort these days. Like, I'm going to bring this giant piece of equipment to use on horses in Little Amsterdam. Yeah. Like, she did it on more, more songs than that. Did she? Yeah. But how many people in Creates the audience... Tension. I guarantee would even you, be aware that no. that was happening. You aren't mentally aware of it or intellectually aware of it, but you feel it because you feel the movement of the piano. You feel the or whatever she's using it on. You feel the movement and the wave of it, and you feel the tension. And when you're alone on stage, I guarantee you, I haven't done the research, but I guarantee you she uses it a lot more when she's alone than when she's with the band. Well, yeah. Because she's trying to create that conflict, and she's a, a single woman. Not single, she's married, but you know, she's a woman alone on stage. She's got to... Gotta create that power. Why are you laughing at me? Anyway, this is enough. I'm done being harassed. (laughs) I'm done being harassed by you. We have taken such a journey that um, Keith has like a big piece of flyaway hair sticking out on the side of his head. He looks like Leslie Nope on Parks and Rep (laughs) when she gets half a perm. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us and thank you for being back with us. We're back. We're better than ever or we're something. We're backer than ever. We're We're backer and more confused than ever. (laughs) What Um, even was that line by line what breakdown what was that it was nothing and everything at the I guess we'll be time. back next week with Little Amsterdam part 2 we've got so much more to say I feel unsatisfied I mean we've talked for four hours about it and I'm still nowhere near who, why who should have paid and what was he paying for well I feel like this is a case when viewer, oh. viewer mail will be even more vital than Please. usual if you have a Tori Amos comment you can call our hotline 323-296-9955 and leave a Tori Amos message and we'll play it on our show. Email us, tell us your thoughts, just tell us you still love us, please. We need the feedback. If you're so inclined, go to iTunes and review us on the iTunes page because we need the reviews. What else do we need, David? I don't know what else we need, but I need a breath of fresh air that is Tallulah. Oh, I can't After wait for this song. I'm really excited stuff. about yeah. Tallulah too. Yeah. You can go to our website, songsoftramus.com. Is it up? It's up. Okay. I mean, we've had some server issues is what David is referring to. Sorry, David. You can go to our website, songsoftramus.com. Sign up for our newsletter where we're going to have exciting things to come. Follow us on Twitter, at Songs of Toramus. Follow us on Instagram, at Songs of Toramus. Follow us on Facebook, at Songs of Toramus. Okay, bye. Bye.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamus.com.